We uh, we'll get this thing started. We um, everybody's sitting in the back tonight. It's a, the back row people and the the other the other guys uh, just uh, have empty chairs. And uh, but anyway, but you never know. He he could do that. He's been known to do that. <laughs> Uh, we continue on with our Ephesians 5. Uh, the, we were in verse 22 last week and kind of pick up on there. But I've got a little uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones quote again about this uh, this section. It's right there. I put it up there on the top of your sheet. <laughs> he says, Here, in this essentially practical part of this epistle, Paul suddenly throws out the most exalted and wonderful statement he has ever made anywhere about the nature of the church and a relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that gets your attention, doesn't it? <laughs> the most. Um, that is, uh, it's really key here, though. It's it's about uh, the relationship between Christ and the church. And uh, that is very instrumental in how we um, interact with all of our relationships. We need to understand the relationship that Christ and the church has so that then we can understand how we function at home with uh, wives, husbands, uh, children, on the job, whatever. The foundation is right here and it's uh, how Christ loved the church and what He did for that. When you, when you think of marriage, uh, you have to consider that really it brings us right into the central point of Christian truth. The doctrine here is really incredible. And when we look into that, we look into the mysteries of, of God and Christ as seen through uh, through the church. So this text, even though it looks like it's just dealing with wives and husbands, as we pointed out last week, really there is a lot more to it than that. It's about Christ and uh, His relationship uh, to, uh, to all of us. Um, although Paul is concerned about peace between husband and wife, the harmony that they are to have, the unity in the... In that kind of relationship, there is to be the submission, there is to be the love, but Christ has to be seen in order for any of this to uh, to function, to be able to practice. So anyway, that's Paul's uh, desire to do, uh, to bring it forth to them what uh, the relationship is like, but uh, it's based upon Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, again, who you are and Help us to focus our attention upon You and Your precious Word. And may we be able to understand You a little bit more and understand the relationship that uh, we have with You. And as that spans on out to all of our other relationships, that we would see the great love that You have for the church, what You have done for the church and continue to do. And that um, gives us the momentum then to be able to... uh, practice these things here on our uh, horizontal relationships. We uh, praise you, Lord, for your Spirit who guides us into your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. And uh, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord, as to the Lord, we submit. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We'll stop there. Um, a lot, a lot right there. We, when we look at that uh, idea of subjection, and we kind of got into that last week a little bit, that uh, the idea of submission, uh, hupotasso, um, there's a, a, a real good reason why uh, the wives are to submit to their husbands. It was God's decree. It's God's will that it be done that way. Um, who was created first? Adam, right? Man. And it was not the woman. And, of course, we see that in Scripture. Um, 
the the wife is considered uh, as written by Peter a weaker vessel, and physically the man was meant to be stronger. God made man to be the head, and He made woman to be a complement to uh, man. And so that's the way that God designed it. He created it that way. He decreed it. And what she was supposed to do was come along and um, make up the deficiencies that would be in the man. And I can see how that works a lot because a lot of times I'm not thinking uh, on places maybe I should be thinking about or forgetting. And it's amazing how um, Carolyn is able to come along and come up with things that I go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. (laughs) It's amazing how many times that happens. But um, anyway, that's just a little example. But um, those kind of things do happen. And uh, we see in here that the man is responsible. He's responsible for his wife. He's responsible for his kids, you know, the whole family, all those ultimate matters. But the wife is to aid, uh, to support, uh, to help. She's called a helpmate. So we'll go back to Genesis 2 just for a moment. And we're not going to be studying just marriage in itself, um, but it's kind of interesting to see what God intended and it's best for everybody. It's God's plan. And in in chapter 2, we know that he says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So he's going to do the things that he's supposed to do, but she's going to come along and uh, be that helper, uh, the the complement, helper comparable to him. And that was a good thing that God had done. And this was before the fall. And so it was designed that way. It was not because Eve had uh, been disobedient or she was deceived. Actually, I think it says in the New Testament that she was deceived and Adam was what? He disobeyed, what have you. Uh, But Eve was deceived and she fell then. And so did Adam as a result of that. That's, I think it's in First Timothy 2. Um, so you have a, a pre-fall, which is where God had it already ordained for it to be that way. Uh, Genesis 3.16, familiar with, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Kind of interesting about that, your desire. Uh, It's very possible it could be this way. One way that you read it is, hey, you're going to desire your husband and he's going to rule over you. Um, And it also could be uh, read in the Hebrew as this, well, you're going to desire what he has and, and his leadership and he's going to rule over you. And what has happened down through the centuries is that Uh, the wives would raise up or the women and they would then put uh, try to be over the men and then they'd stomp them back down and then you have a constant cycle of this where you have uh, a circle of of who takes the leadership and uh, it says like from here on out that's what it's going to be you're going to try to rule over your husband yourself or you have a desire to have over him but he's going to rule over you and he will uh, um, dampen you down and so constantly uh, we've seen that through history. It could read that way. But we know that um, when the fall happened, even though there was a subordination rule, uh, I mean, a role as far as what God had set up, when the fall happened, then it multiplied it that much more. It increased. And ever since then, it's uh, been wreaking havoc as uh, we see that uh, sometimes... Neither one of them really know their roles, and I think today we could probably see that in, in a lot of cases. Um, I, neither one of them know their place. And what Adam uh, should have done was uh, been there and to uh, be uh, taking the role that he had. But I think what she should have done was maybe consult Adam. Maybe she should have gone to him if she didn't know about this. So. Uh, any way you look at it, she usurped the authority. She usurped the rule that he had and the very power that he was given in that position. And when that happens, then you have um, uh, you have a reversal. 
And uh, you go into Timothy, and you see where Timothy is given instructions by Paul about women and their preaching and their teaching. And uh, they're not to take authority or usurp authority. Go to 1 Timothy 2. One time I just had this read in a Sunday school class and I got into all sorts of havoc. Got into all sorts of trouble and I hadn't even made any comments. But in verse 11, Let a woman learn in silence with all submission... And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man to be in silence. And he gives a reason. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. Um, God has al- had already appointed who was to be the head and it's not making one or the other better than another. It's just the different roles that he's put forth. Troops have to have a leader, right? Uh, it'd be chaos. It'd be totally out of control if everybody in the army uh, had the right to decide. Can you imagine that? Everybody would have... They'd be equal in, in the roles that they play, so therefore uh, you'd, you'd lose <laughs> in an instant. Yeah, Barb? It's interesting because my note down here... Verse 11 kind of tries to smooth, you know, smooth that over, make it sound a little more appealing to people who would be, to women who would be offended by that statement. Uh huh. Because it's saying, um, when Paul said that women should learn the quietness and in full submission, he was offering them an amazing new opportunity. And Paul did not want the Ephesian women to teach because they didn't yet have enough knowledge or experience. Oh. <laughs> that's a yeah the study Bible there right mm-hmm. but then you that, but they don't say anything about verse thirteen probably and and it gives the reason for Adam was formed first then Eve yeah yeah it's uh, I guess that would be a politically correct statement there and I'm sure those study Bibles would be coming back real quick if they didn't have something like that. <laughs> well, I think it might have been Alvin, actually, that told me, he said, remember, what's up here is written by God and what's down here is written by Written by men. And if we get that confused, then we're in trouble, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty clear there. It, it, God had already arranged this to be this way all the way back to Adam. Yeah. Martin Lloyd-Jones has, again, it's something out of his commentary here. I think it was really fascinating when he preached those uh, Bible study, those messages that he did. And uh, I think I think most of them were done on those Friday night messages that he had, expository preacher. And he said something, I, this was like in the 60s, I think he wrote a lot of those uh, and did that. And he's from, um, he's Welsh. And so there he is in over in the, the British Isles, and he's writing about America back in the, let's say, early 60s. Listen to this. i got a quote here. Feminism has led to aggressiveness on the part of the wife. She is setting herself up as an equal and undermining the husband. And here's what he said. This was decades ago. 60 or 50 years ago. We are seeing this in the United States of America. It's a matriarchal society. The woman is the cultured person and the children look to her. The result, of course, is the growth of crime and all terrible social problems with which they are grappling with in that country. Back in the 60s. They influence every other country. We're talking this this country. They influence every other country, their films, and in various other ways, this attitude is being spread throughout the entire world. A matriarchal society with the woman as a head and center of the home is a denial of biblical teaching and indeed is a repetition of the old sin of Eve. Isn't that insightful? That's rather interesting. Fifty years ago, and of course, you see what he was saying. It was like, boy, he was 
ahead of his time. I guess a lot of people probably saw that at the time, though. Um, when the church operates away from the principle that God has, and they go out of the authority that has been put forth by the Lord, it usually results in heresy. If you were to take Mary Baker Eddy, she was the one that uh, started uh, Christian Science. And then you have Helen Blavatsky, quite a spiritualist, and she started Theosophy. Then you have Mrs. Charles Fillmore, and she started Unity. And you have Amy McPherson, Simple McPherson, and she started the Four Square, which I think you guys are familiar with. And if you look through a lot of things that have started since, well, in the last 50 years or more, uh, Seventh-day Adventist, um, that's right, Um, can't remember her name, slips me, Um, of course the Joyce Meyer ministry and a big following there, but um, it's, it's just something that kind of goes out of order and then we see something that really gets develops into something uh, that's really not very biblical. What's the motive of all this submission if we look at what God had planned out and we know what it's pointing to? It's pointing to the relationship of the church to Christ. And until God is the authority of man and wife until really he's the ruler in each one of them. And if they don't submit themselves to him, really there is no hope anyway if we're talking about salvation. But in uh, our individual relationships, we are to be under submission of our Lord, right? And if either one of them, a man and a wife, is out, uh, it makes it rather difficult. So the relationship that we have as husband and wives or as just people in general is really key or or the body of Christ of how they operate together because it uh, is talking about, especially in the uh, husband and wife relationship, a mystical union. It's a union that we see here of the church where you have a union between Christ and His church and how much He loves the church. Uh, Quite a union. And that's that's the true nature of where marriage is to be, to be based upon that thought. Can you imagine if every marriage was uh, the, the the couple would be counseled in the sense of this is what you're based on. It's how Christ takes care of the church and, and the love and, and the submission that works uh, in not only the Godhead but then the relationship between us and God. It's a it's a vital uh, intimate relationship that uh, God has with us. Look in 1 Corinthians 11.3 and we see that idea of uh, the head. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So he puts forth a, an order there uh, definitely showing that um, we're all under Christ we're all under his lordship, um, but uh, the the role that he has is we have to we have to put him as the as the head, as Where is the that ruler. Scripture that says, "And every man did what was right in his own sight." Yeah, right. A lot of changing, yeah. changing in that. It sounds good. It it sounds so legitimate. It, uh, it matter of fact. Um, a lot of times, would you say that whenever the men, and usually I have to put the blame on the men, when the men aren't present, or when the men aren't doing what they're supposed to do, then it seems like the the woman has to come in and take his place. And then what happens? Then it's out of order, but she's doing what seems to be right. I heard of uh, a lady who was a, a missionary, and I think she lost her husband, and they wanted her to go ahead and uh, con- take the place that he did and preach and teach. And she was very capable. And there are women teachers that are very capable, and, and they should use that gift. But there are proper places and times to do that. 
what what she said, no, I won't do that because I am not given that role to do. But what I will do is I'll take one of the ones who is progressing here and I will help him along in being able to do that. And so she gave, um, um, with, with a little help, and worked with this one man and individual as he grew in the Lord. And he is the one who took over there. Rather than going ahead and filling in the slot, which made sense, she, w- she could have done what was right in her own eyes. And would it, seem, it would seem right. It was kind of like what uh, Zach was talking about yesterday. It would seem right that that somebody should catch that ark that was on the what? The wagon, which it shouldn't have been anyway. But it would seem right to catch that. That would be what was right in his own eyes. But what has God already said? That takes the load off of us if we'd say, well, here's what God originally and has always meant. Here's what he said. Make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? But sometimes we try to mend things and we make things worse. And then the consequences follow. But I think it's so clear from Old Testament and New Testament and he's not making a cut on anybody. It's just what he's arranged and it's amazing how it works. Uh, Colossians 1.18 And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. There again, he's speaking of the head uh, of the the church, the head of the body. It's It's a great illustration, isn't it? Go to Ephesians, uh, back to chapter 1. And he even starts mentioning it there. And he put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. You keep seeing that organic union of the head and the body. And uh, one of the favorite illustrations that Paul uses, uh, chapter 4, I think Paul uses it in there too. Uh, From whom the whole body joined. Verse 15, he's talking about the head, Christ, right at the end of 15. And then from whom the whole body joined and knit together. So you have that organic union. Um, Now that next phrase, back to Ephesians 5 now. Christ is head of the church and He is the Savior of the body. No trouble with that. Uh, I think it's pretty well understood. But uh, the word is related to sozo, I think. And it means to preserve. It means to um, be one who guards or protects. That's the idea of a savior, and uh, there it's the word is capitalized. There's another place that's kind of interesting in First Timothy, where this word is used again. Sozo. First, First uh, Timothy four, ten. Paul is saying, "For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach." because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Now, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? He's the Savior of all men. And if you were to read that the way that it might sound to some people anyway, it'd be that, well, He's going to save all people. And so, therefore, we'd take on universalism which means everybody's going to be saved. And that is probably a verse that a universalist would use. Would you think so? Chuck Swindoll was talking about that the other day. He said that's mm-hmm. the one thing that, the, that keeps him from being a true five-point Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he needs to look further. <laughs> that last phrase, especially of, of believers. Exactly. Put the limit on and, and I think that's how Spurgeon did that. You know, there, there has to be the limit on that, or otherwise everybody's a universalist. And Christians cannot be universalists because that would take, well, that makes God a liar. 
I think that has to be more fully explained, though. You know, it has to be carefully fully explained because it does really say he's the Savior of all men. I mean, you, you can't just go to the second part and say, you know, especially those who believe. Well, um, I don't think especially there necessarily means the word especially. I don't think that's a good translation. Probably what, really what, literary, especially or? That's a, yeah. I think that's a literary word use. You know, and, I mean, uh, rather than saying especially, I think there, there might be another way to put that, but um, uh, maybe... You know, that's why phrases like that become confusing to people. Well, if you, if you were, let's say, reading in the Greek, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to see a capital S there. Now, we see as Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So we take that word and, and uh, it's dear to us. But immediately we think of, well, that's talking about salvation. Mm-hmm. And there are different ways to read this, granted. But first of all, if you put that as a, a little s, or think of he is a preserver, he is a garter, he is a protector, then it starts bringing on a little bit different light. If you want to consider it, if it is covering all men, then he is that as far as, let's say, let's take common grace. God reigns upon the just and the unjust. He takes care of every individual in a sense until it's time for them to be taken. Until it's time they die, He still is the one that gives them the breath to even live, uh, to to move about and whatever they do. Uh, so there's that common grace. And He's restraining sin. I mean, the world is bad enough the way it is. But what would happen if God just let it go? And you take sinful man, uh, this world would not last any longer. It wouldn't take very long. Well, so, there's a scripture that says that, that there's no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. So that means the Savior of all men. There's no other way. Yeah. That doesn't mean all men are going to be saved. Right. He, and and who who is he going to save? Well, He's going to save the believers. Yeah. Which is just what this verse says. Right. But it doesn't say that in our language. I mean, it... If you just read it by itself, all I'm saying is that it needs to be carefully. Like if you were talking to someone, or I was talking to someone, or any of us talking to someone, and saying, "Well, this is really what this means," that's going to be confusing, you know. Well, you have your connotative and your denotative. It, you know, it really it has to be approached. Well, I can't read it in the original language, so I just take what it says, and it sounds to me like that's what it says. What what would happen if we would tell them, okay, first of all, if they're a Christian, and, and what you're saying is there, there are going to be people well, that would debate against you. I all the right. time now right. on Facebook talking to people. And there's so many people that just look at words like these were words written in the 21st century or whatever, you know, and sentences given in the 21st century. And so they... They read them, and one person, you know, Eldon reads it, and he sees it just the way he understands, the way we all understand this. But so many people would read that as God saves the whole world, you know. And And, so they would have just as much validity of understanding and their understanding as we would. And so. What would be the first thing that you want to clarify with them then? Would, what would you ask them? Do you believe that everybody is going to be saved? That would be the next. That's where we'd take them into mm-hmm. universalism. I'd yeah. say you have to reconcile it with the rest of the scripture, exactly. And that too, yeah. That's yeah. that's the main. You have to take the whole thing. But but there are several scriptures that that oh, yeah, they know. would also pile up as you know. So all I'm saying is. Uh, these are difficult. It is. There's a matter of fact. There's another Timothy passage that uh, we have to deal with too uh, when we're talking with this uh, about this same issue. Um, and and it's not 
It's not easy. Yeah. And you're not going to maybe necessarily convince it, but if we take in the context, like what we're saying there, we take in that language and saying, okay, is God a protector? Is He one who guards? Is He the one who gives the sun, sunshine? Is He the one who gives the rain? Is He the one who gives food to everybody? And really, honestly, that's the idea of the word Savior, not taking it away from Him being our Savior. We know that, especially when it talks about, well, the especially, the especially, especially the ones who believe. Yeah. <laughs> there uh, I go, I'm double using it. But. See, I mean, I, okay, so like with a few more words, it could be read with explicit, you know, explicitly, like He's the Savior of all men in that He... Uh, gives common grace. However, especially eternal life to those who believe. Well, you just hit it. And this is the whole key. When when we want to ask them this, is saying, okay, are we talking eternally here? Yeah. Or are we talking on a, what, the eternal sense for a believer? Or are we turkey, talking in a non-permanent way? Yeah, uh, a temporal way. sense. That's, and, that's all I'm saying. Is yeah. It, when you just read something, unless you understand other scriptures and have been studying into this stuff, and you've uh, come, you've been persuaded that you understand it to mean, you know, God atones in a definite way for believers, you know, then then it means something completely different than just on the surface. Yeah, and, and of course, I think that's where we're, we're hitting at is, is dealing with the definite atonement. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you're going to find hardly any Christians are going to say that they believe in universalism. Although, um, whenever I was talking to an individual right here in the store one day, it finally came down to that, and he said, well, you know what? That's right. He says, it would be. He says, well, I'm going to have to take a universalist view. And he wasn't trying to, <laughs> to be nasty with me about it he said I, I and i don't even know if it was this verse but i said when it came down to it either christ died for his people or he died for all and i said that's really what an arminian is doing and he's applying it to them now it's now open to all he's the savior of everybody and he the said atonement, uh, is for all for all, yeah, and who who is it who is it paid for? Ultimately, is what it, what it comes down to. Is is that? I, I struggle with that. That's the, time. Well, it, it's a difficult out of the out of the. Uh, I think the the whole idea of like if you want to take the five points, that's the one that is always the hardest one. That is the one that we struggle with. But then, if we go back and we look at depravity, depravity of all men, and we look at the election of God, then there is no trouble with limited atonement, even though it is to be preached that um, the gospel is offered to all. He does not pay for all sins. Because then what we're we going to have, we're going to have a double jeopardy. So that's where the limited atonement has to come into play in the sense that he really died for his specific ones. If we believe in depravity of man okay. and the election. All right. So, And I just heard in this room now, that, and I'm just pushing this a little bit because I do struggle with this as far as, you know, and I think I'm, you know, it's okay, but... Um, when I hear things like, well, he did die, he did atone for everyone. Is that what was said? Did the atonement's for everybody? Is that kind of what I heard? Um, you mean the price that was paid? In other words, a blanket was thrown out there. Jesus died on the cross and the atonement... Don't you say it like he atoned for all sin? Mm-hmm. Now, he atoned for all of my sin. I mean, there's not one that he didn't cover. But that, say in saying that, that doesn't mean he's automatically atoned for the sin of the whole world, unless, especially unless they are those who believe. See, See that sounds like yeah. double talk to 
but but that's just my hang up. You know, it's like it's like I like I said, I just there's some things I just can't quite here's the question I always have to ask if he elected his people before the foundation of the world Mm -hmm. is there anybody else that can get in if if the elect have already already been predestined are there any Mm non-elect that can get in are we saying there is the door is closed no yeah. No, and that's what I that's what I believe the Bible is, that, you know, teaches that, that Jesus died for his people and that right. was determined, you know, before any of us were ever here. But and that his church is his you know, the father gives the bride to Christ. And that's all been predetermined. But um what I guess what my hang-up, if I call it a hang-up, what I have struggles with is scriptures that say these things a certain way. And I know what I believe from, you know, I'm persuaded to believe in limited atonement. But the scriptures are difficult to continue to persuade me that in that regard 100% all the time. That's, you know, because of the wording. Right. Well, like that word all has many... Yeah, does it mean every individual or... Yeah. Right. And, and Are we talking on how it's used and everything like that? I didn't mean to like bear off on a whole big old thing here, but I just I wanted to bring this up only because, like I said, I, I think it's difficult. What you're sitting there saying is because the heart because wants so to many take, people think different yeah, things. but the heart wants to take it in the man-centered idea of who God is. Well, and those are the people that I deal with all the yeah, time. Yeah, but. Because man mistakes and misunderstands who God is. But they would they say, I misunderstand who God yeah, is. Yeah, so See? that's where you so. go back, and that's why you have, that's what you said. Because <clears throat> that basically it, it appeals to the flesh. Except for yeah. that God has to accept everybody. Right. Yeah, I know what you're saying, God, because I was one of those people. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you've seen I it on the other side of that. I a lot of trouble because uh-huh. I had many scriptures. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I found the reform view and I started to study it. Yeah. Very, very repugnant. I mean, I just recoiled. It made me angry. But as I studied it, I could not avoid seeing that the this biblical scriptures re- mm-hmm. you know, supporting the reform yeah. are so much stronger mm-hmm. than the scriptures I had as an Arminian. Yeah. That I just I had to bow to it. Yeah. The scriptures that you could refute the so-called Armenians. Mm-hmm. I just want to understand them. what other people are thinking and where they're coming from and why. And, and so I I intentionally get myself into yeah. these. I want to get discouraged because you know yeah. these great reformers mm-hmm. who write these wonderful books and I have read you know a lot yeah. of them. I have never read one that didn't start out as an Armenian. Really? Yes. It's so, yeah. Because it's so serving to yes, be that they way. They struggled for it's years. It's, an yeah. natural, it's the most natural thing to, to uh-huh. take that view. Well, it's because it is your flesh that first you're building upon those ideas. On. Uh-huh. So it's kind of a natural way to go. Yeah. to think that you are the one that did it for God. Yeah. Instead of recognizing it in time when you begin to serve him or begin to work with him or walk with him. And you realize it's not, it's not me. Yeah. And, and that's, a, that's our constant walk to be for the rest of our life. Yeah. Is to realize it's all him and it's not, not, it's not, not me at all. And then in turn, that makes you understand his grace mm-hmm. that much more to what he keeps continuing to supply to us. Yeah. And it, leaves, it leaves all him and solely off of him and who he is. And it puts us down lower and lower. So that's all that's what we're doing is talking about submission. Mm-hmm. It's a very good verse about submission right there. <laughs> yeah, getting back to that. Words, That's right. Is exactly what it is. Yeah, hoopla, man. 
Well, the um, and I'm I'm really Bob. You don't have uh, you don't have to say you're sorry because I'm the one who took us there. Because there's that's another place where it says Savior, and there's nothing wrong with saying Savior. And I automatically think of eternal life and my Savior who saves me from my sin. Right. But just because we see that word Savior doesn't necessarily mean, and like and you already said it, doesn't necessarily mean that's an eternal matter every time we see that. Uh-huh. And especially of us, He's our Savior, knowing that He saves us here on earth while we live, but He saves us for eternity. Now, it doesn't say eternity there, but especially of those, He is a Savior even more so than He would be for all the people that have ever lived through time, Mm -hmm. that He had them here. But in in John 10, it's a great place to turn to. Um, in, In John 10... 15, it says, And the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, this is this is not really off basis, because this applies right back to our Ephesians 5, where you have the relationship between the church and, and Christ, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here it says that here you have the Father, and then you have the Son. And he says, I'm going to lay my, I lay my down my life for the sheep. If we go over to verse, uh, let's say, 26, as he's speaking here to some of the religious people and the leaders, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And then he says, I give them eternal life. So there is he's a savior of these people in the sense that they're still living and existing and uh, they're blessed material matters. But at the same time, he says, you're not of my sheep. You're not. Um, you, you don't believe because you, you're not of my sheep. All of my sheep can do that. Um, our John 17 is another one I think of in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me. These are the particular ones now. We get into a particular redemption, which I like that sound better than I think even limited atonement, even though it's true. Even Arminians have to limit the atonement because they don't believe in universalism either. Their their bridge doesn't go all the way over, though. Uh, Spurgeon uh, pictures it. It's a bridge that goes out halfway and stops then it's up to you to jump to the other side. You have to make the rest of it. Or it's a very narrow bridge, but it goes all the way across. And so therefore, God has made that true. And that's what uh, he speaks of in the atonement. In John 17, he says, Here are the ones that have been given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you, for I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. He's talking about these particular ones, of course, the twelve. He's talking about the eleven there. Yeah, the eleven. I better say eleven rather than twelve, hadn't I? <laughs> I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. And so if people want to use world and all, we see that he wasn't praying for other people here. He's praying for them. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now we know there's definitely election that's being brought in here. That's no problem and everything. But how does that apply uh, for the death of Christ? And we see that if he lays down his life for the sheep, and the sheep are the ones who what? They are the ones who believe. And we know why they believe, because it's granted to them, and it's not for anybody. So when he lay, he didn't lay down his life for the ones that weren't given to him, as we compare seventeen chapter 17 to chapter 10. So there's a laying down or an actual dying or in our Ephesians 5 um, that we're looking at tonight. Uh, many will use that for um, the particular redemption belief uh, in that he gives himself up to the, the church, right? Um, Anyway, yeah, I, I know it's and unless somebody is following what you have to say there, 
they have much difficulty with it. But it would make sense. How could he die and pay for the sins of everybody else whenever the Father's wrath has been satisfied? And I think that's why the uh, redemption and the whole atonement is a really big issue today because we're having a lot of books being put out again now, mostly by the reform camp because they're seeing that the redemption or the the buying out, uh, the success of the cross was not finished if it wasn't for a particular redemption. That means it's up to somebody else. So we can't say that work is finished. His work is done, but now it's up to the rest of people. And so now the whole election thing goes out the window, and so does the depravity of man, because there's something in them good enough to be able to do that. Yeah. So you have to take it back to there, and then you can reconcile and say, okay, now using the language, I can see where Savior could be misunderstood by them, but when we see that, it means more than just saving for salvation. To me, that's what it really means. But uh, it can mean other things, too. So, anyway. Okay. Well, thank you for spending some time on that. Uh, well, I, I kind of meant to go there. Anybody else yeah. Else. yeah. <laughs> so, it, all, it always and, takes and us back. Like Carolyn said, you know, we're all talking about submission here to, to the Word and to, you know, I think it's good that we wrestle with these things and get them. Oh, that's. Get that's, them. Uh, what it's always about, we and we have to we have to search for ourselves to finally get that established. But yeah, be persuaded in your own the wife has a savior. Her savior, you know, is of course with Christ. But in another way, by looking at this text, we see her savior is the husband because he is to keep for her. He's to provide for her. He's to preserve her, to guard her, to protect, to shield. And that's that's the thought here when we we look at this and as we advance into uh, husbands love your wives it's already saying it here in this verse 23 uh, for the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he's the savior of the body and so therefore the husband is the savior of this union between husband and wife even. Uh, being the protector, provider. There's a completeness, though. She's the complement of this, and she should never act independent of the head. And if you have a body acting independent of the head, you're going to have spastic uh, convulsions, and it's going to operate in an in a uncoordinated way. And so God had this uh, arranged. And uh, I think the model for the husbands is that they have to see their their role as a provider, uh, a protector, uh, take the lead to, to love, to be the head. Uh, he's the full, uh, she's the fulfillment uh, of him, and that's the way that God ordained it. Well, how should a husband love his wife? What does it say here in verse 25? 24 comes back and just repeats this. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husband. Oh, by the way, I never really notice this very too often, but it says, in everything. Did you notice that? In everything. Wow. Now, here's the husbands, and and, uh, this is love, and this is that agape kind of love, just as Christ also loved the church. So he's already presented Christ being head of the church and and such, and he says, okay, now here's where you're at. Uh, And what did Christ do? He gave himself for her, for the church. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for for her. Oh, what's the church in, in the Greek? Ecclesia, right? For the called out ones. He loves the ones that have been called out. And there again, I think you can see the limited atonement in this in the sense that the church is the reason he died. He died for the church or the called out ones or in John 10, the sheep. And so we go right back to that third point of limited atonement because he died for who? The church. That gets into more specific ones rather than just all. 
But when we take the Gospel out, we don't know who they are. So it is to be offered to who? Each and everyone. Whoever we're going to. Everybody. Because we don't know. God does. But we're we're not commanded to try to find out who they are. We just go out there and take it out. So He gave Himself for the bride, the church. And He did it, according to Romans 5, while we were still enemies and ungodly and sinners. Romans 5, 7, and 8. Now, here's my challenge to a husband who says, yeah, I'm the head and I'm taking over and you have to submit to me. No husband can ever say that unless he loves his wife. And so we see the loving and it has to be compared to Christ which um, that's a pretty hard example, isn't it? First Corinthians 13, you have to think of that, that area. Um, the power that he has to have is to be controlled by love. I uh, think to Timothy, Paul wrote, of love, power, love, and of a sound mind. Power is controlled by what? Love. We can abuse power. And I think today... Power is abused and love is abused. And we have all sorts of problems with that. When we realize the truth about the relationship of Christ and the church, it finally starts hitting of how we are to not only love others in general, definitely in in, in the family and the relationship of a husband and wife. Um, we're, We're led into this great mystery. Like verse 32 says, this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. In order that husbands might know how to love their wives, he says it right here, you have to love like Christ did, which was give himself up for her. And Boy, that's quite a concern. Uh, and I don't think this is just for, for husbands. I think in Philippians it says that we are to, in Philippians 2, Consider ourselves, or, or um, turn to Philippians two. Yeah, prefer others over our own. Yeah, thanks. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Or in verse three, let each esteem others better than himself. So now, you know, that extends out even beyond our marriage. It extends to everywhere, and. So it's not just husbands when we when we talk about love. So this is going to even apply to everybody of how we are to love each other. Uh, Christ is the head of not only you know the whole body, but he he's ahead of every individual. Then isn't he? Every single believer he is ahead of. Christ and the church is where we want to start. And I think when when believers see that when we when we start with what we think of love. And then we see the love defined here in, like Ephesians, for instance, or in 1 Corinthians 13. I think then, when we see Christ dying for the church, giving himself up, that's how we think of what marriage is is really about. Um, What's the attitude of Christ as he looks at the church? What's his attitude? Yeah. Question Where were you reading in um, Philippians chapter 2? Verse 3 and verse 4. Sorry there. Does that make sense? Philippians 2? It's about esteeming others, yeah. having a, this that attitude. And then you get the example of, again, Christ. <laughs> He's the motive of it all. Uh, He's the epitome of what humility is. How does Christ look upon the church? What's His concern here? In spite of their unworthiness, in spite of the deficiencies the church had, He loved the church not because of anything the church had in it or those called out ones. It wasn't because of that, was it? It was because that is what he wanted to do. You know, he gave himself up. Romans five, seven through eight, it really explains it. Look what he's already done. And I think this is the very heart, the very center of Christian truth. And and we're not spending a lot of times of how wives are to do this and husbands are to do this. What are we actually looking at? 
We look at Christ. That's, that's our whole motive in everything that we do. We look at the cross. The doctrine of the atonement. We've, we've actually talked about the atonement here more tonight than we really have been talking about submission and love. Although that's what is part of the atonement. Because you have Christ who submitted to the triune God, to the Father, actually I guess you could say, in what He did and in His actions as He loved the church that was given to Him. You think of Galatians 2.20. You get doctrine there. Uh, doctrine all over the place on such a practical issue. Second Corinthians and Galatians and a few stuff. Galatians, where are you at? We know it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer who I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which, which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. When Christ gives Himself up for an individual, believe me, that individual is His no matter what. That is tremendous. Jesus died for the church. Ephesians 1.7 After He's talked about predestination... In Him we have redemption through His blood. If His blood has been shed for you, what do you have? What does it say here in 7? Redemption. That means to be paid for. To be bought and paid for. It was through His blood. And that's forgiveness of sins and riches of grace. All of that really comes into play there. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Everyone that He bought and paid for was a sweet-smelling aroma to God the Father because those are the ones that He gave to the Son. The Son now has died for them and that aroma, that that Christ did is to be offered up to Him. Of course, our lives are that too. What was His purpose? To redeem the church. To redeem the... What's the church called? Called out ones. When you read that in Greek, if you were a Greek person, you would have read, He gave Himself up for the called out ones or the elect ones. Now we have it really specific. What's the Greek word for elect? Um, eklektos. We get our English word that comes right out of that. Yeah. Have you ever heard uh, a, a definition of that as quality? Huh. Or something related to I don't to think so. Quality? Okay. I was just curious. Okay. Everything that I've always, at least what I've come across, was um, to select, to pick yeah. out, to yeah. choose. Yeah, that's yeah. what my concordance says. Right. Uh, we're going to finish here. Um, I mean, I'm not going to go into verse 26 and 27. That's purifying love. We'll take it up next week. But to test a man who says he loves his wife, it's not by what he says, but what he what what he does. What did Christ do? He didn't say he was going to do something. Of course, he did say it, but he did it. The act there, and that's what love is, that He actually did it. Uh, we might find in things, in people that we don't like, deficiencies and faults and failures and sins. And then people multiply that, and then comes the separation, and then comes a divorce. Why? Uh, well, it probably uh, is because they're not looking at it the way that it's stated here in Ephesians. Um, I think if we would always remember how we were saved, that great Savior, I think then we would go back and see, oh, this is how this is supposed to work. But we don't focus on that. Any little problem that we have really should go back to where? To Christ. Look what He did to love us. And then I think that tempers it and at least gets our thinking in a more correct mode if we would look and see what the motive is for everything. It's Christ, isn't it? And I think that's why he keeps saying Christ and the church. Think what he did for you as an individual. For you. 
he died. <laughs> now we have to go back. <laughs> and so that person that, that you might have a difficulty with, you're supposed to love them, but you can say, yeah, but they don't earn it. <laughs> they, they don't deserve my respect. And then Christ says, ah, but you don't. Look what I did for you. That's what true love is. Sacrifice. Wow. Anyway, that's it. That's it. Thank you guys for coming out. So we kind of got into something a little bit different the way the text looks, but I hope it really stayed to the text. <laughs> yeah, that was helpful. Okay. That's right. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, I know he did.